This is the Saxo Market Call. Daily insights on what is moving the financial markets. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It's Thursday, 8th of December, 2022. Very quiet day on the equity markets yesterday, certainly, but we do have very interesting moves in the Treasury market with the U.S. 10-year benchmark was so watched at that long end of the curve, dipping below the 3.5% level with a bit more conviction this time. That's a key level. It's a, it's a round level. It was the high uh, around the June FOMC meeting when that was uh, when the market was rushing to price in the Fed moving by 75 basis points for the first time. Uh, but, but the market uh, sort of pausing here, um, maybe finding a little bit of support from the idea that yields are headed lower. I guess we're supposed to be pricing in a soft landing uh, if we're not continuing lower, but um, not a whole lot to draw out of a quiet session like this, Peter. But we have some more thoughts later on on the yield curve and and uh, the the road from here. Yeah, it was very very quiet session. We closed at least in the uh, the continuous future series on S and P five hundred smack on the one hundred day moving average yesterday. The thirty nine hundred is still the the big level, but we had had the lowest close yesterday since uh, since uh, the tenth of November when we got that big rally. On the uh, on the positive surprise to the inflation figures in the U.S. In terms of the theme baskets, of course, bubble stocks up there as the best performing, uh, reacting of course to the um, to the uh, the U.S. ten year closing below three point five percent. And then on slide three, highlighting today the uh, the uh, the Swedish house market. We've talked about it before. So the uh, Swedish house price were down three percent month on month in the previous month. Um, Sense the nervousness from the the Riggs Bank, but also Swedish banks. Um, these this is um, courtesy of Bloomberg and uh, putting in these forecasts from the Riggs Bank. You can see how much they have lowered their forecast uh, November compared to September. Uh, I, sort of, I have the same feeling a little bit as uh, with all these uh, inflation forecasts from central banks that as soon as you're getting wrong, you you continue to getting wrong <clears throat> because the model is not capturing the right dynamics. Um, I think the, the November forecast is probably too ro- uh, too rosy or is not reflecting uh, the potential impact overall so um so if you look at what they're pricing in it's a, it's a 20 to 25% uh, move from the peak to the lows which is expected to be in Q4 uh, 23 I, I think it's going to be an interesting test <clears throat> of a of a major market uh, and you know significant house price decline since the global financial crisis and also how banks are going to to uh, to react to that and talking about banks like four you mentioned John uh, late la- late uh, yesterday afternoon Peter, what's happening with Bank of America and some of these U.S. banks? And I said, I don't know. I haven't checked it. And then we could see that, you know, the prices had been sliding quite dramatically over the past two or three trading sessions. And this chart here on slide four is um, the S&P 500 banks index relative to the S&P 500. So here you can see the relative performance, not a really rosy chart over a five year uh, period. And especially last week, it has been very, very weak. Uh, the weakest, I think, in terms of uh, negative momentum in uh, you know since late last year. And it's all about you know these banking CEOs. They're having this uh, banking conference in the U.S. and they all telling the same story. You know, credit card credit card usage is going down. Uh, now um, deposits are being withdrawn from banks. Um, loaning loan activity is, is slowing down, etc. Basically, just doom and gloom in this uh, conference that's really taking a hit. And then also this comment from the Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, that he talks about clients being really fatigued. And that was what we talked about in the podcast yesterday. There is just this feeling of everyone just being extremely tired after what I think has been the most crazy year I've experienced at Saxo in 12 years. 
So um, I think we'll just linger at being a limbo here and just go into hibernation, uh, which fits really very well with the weather here in Denmark. So um, that's it. <laughs> yeah, the uh, uh, the uh, the craziness of the year has been uh, bad for many, especially those with passive portfolios. The 60-40 uh, type of portfolio most notoriously, of course, with both bonds and stocks in for such a brutal year. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, in our internal discussions, the Citadel hedge fund, which had a banner year and really enjoyed the uh, volatility, sending its, I think it was 10,000 employees uh, onto jets and to Disney World for a massive celebration suggests, I think their books are probably closed if they're on Disney World uh, here in December. Uh, and it makes me wonder if, if we just get a, a really sort of a treacherous end of the year, unless we get some massive surprises next week uh, and, and with macro bets not really being placed until we roll into the new year. But just want to briefly highlight one thing that I think is very interesting here. The most interesting thing I would say, and that is the U.S. yield curve. If you go to slide five, I put up uh, on the left chart there, the, the so the slope, the 210 slope is the black line where we've, we've hit new cycle lows below minus 80 basis points in the last couple of days. And it's pretty remarkable given that the two-year yield there locally is hitting on the lows for the sort of the, the range here. I really don't think this inversion can happen uh, more profoundly uh, with yields dropping all along the curve. I think the only way to get more inversion would be to have inflationary surprises and the Fed having to price uh, more uh, more hiking because inflationary worries are persistent rather than uh, what's going on now, which you see on the right there with that, um, I put up two euro dollar short-term interest rate futures, the, the blue one being the sort of the, the peak anticipated uh, yield mid next year. So that's the March three month uh, uh, future for, for next year. That's the blue line. Pricing in around 5% or just below. Uh, and then you look out at uh, a couple of years later at the uh, mid-2025, and you can see the gap there. That's suggesting the Fed is going to be rolling multiple hundreds of basis points or a couple hundred basis points lower between those two. Um, so, yeah, uh, the only path to steepening, or sorry, to further inversion is uh, inflationary surprises and the Fed having to stay on message and continuing and pricing out those, those uh, hikes, or sorry, those rate cuts that are priced in. Either that or the the ten year would have to somehow go even further to the downside uh, relative to a falling two year yield. So I just find that uh, I find it a remarkable statement by the market, a remarkable uh, inversion relative to what interest rates are doing. Something to highlight and something I think yield curve dynamics will be very interesting in the coming weeks. All right, uh, well let's let's bring you into the conversation. We've talked a lot about on these uh, container shipping rates. They sort of neutralized back to where they were pre pandemic. Because the whole you know, pig in a python situation with massive demand uh, on pandemic stimulus, uh, just by, and then the inability to deliver it because of supply chain disruptions because of the pandemic, that whole thing has come full circle. If we look at least at some container shipping rates, so what, what's your latest here on uh, on slide six? And it's just based on a weekly update, John. Just give an idea that we're still in free fall when it comes to uh, the cost of uh, shipping containers around the world. Um, also, just tying in with the uh, with the uh, economic outlook, uh, pointing to recession and at least economic weakness uh, uh, during the uh, during the early parts of next year, because obviously some of these containers they are bringing goods in that's that's supposed to be sold next year, and um, and the cost of that is 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 still coming down. China to EU uh, remains the uh, hardest hit, um, hitting the lowest level since June 2020. And at this point, the the global index is only ten percent above the the long term average that we saw ahead of the, the that the pandemic uh, surge in in container rates. It's not only containers; it's also the transportation of, of major bulks, uh, major con- uh, container, well, major uh, goods around the world uh, from from coal and steel to uh, 
to uh, to to crops. We're seeing uh, the the these major uh, major open ships, Cape size, Panamax, and Supermax also drifting lower. So just all all tying in with the with the story of an economic economic slow on an incoming economic slowdown. All right, and if we go to the FX space, the next uh, page, we're we're sort of treading water here. Uh, the dollar not getting as as beat down on these uh, new drops and yields as one might expect, especially in dollar yen, as I noted in slide seven there, you would expect with the uh, 10 year yields hitting new lows that dollar yen might be uh, testing support. But that recent slide uh, down to sub 134 and the bounce, subsequent bounce, is just not doing much. Uh, I'm scratching my head a little bit at that one, uh, but we'll have to see how the, uh, the shapes up next week. That is the bigger test for the U.S. dollar here. The Canadian dollar in for more pain. Uh, we had a Bank of Canada meeting yesterday in, in which they hiked the 50 basis points, but as I suggested, whether they hiked 25 or 50 was immaterial relative to where they uh, guided for the sort of the peak rates. And of course, they don't specifically guide for peak rates, which are anticipated only uh, less than 25 basis points higher from here. But the language in the statement on the guidance was pretty, uh, pretty dovish, uh, potentially. There's there's always some two-way interpretation here, but almost the, the sense is in the language that uh, we'll see whether it's necessary to tighten anymore as data comes in. And that leaves them open to not hike anymore at all if they feel that uh, inflationary forces are coming down and growth impacts are hitting uh, from here. So we, we still have that Canadian dollar leading the charge, uh, the race to the bottom uh, among G10 currencies. And the curious Kiwi, uh, still the strongest of G10 currencies. Just a remarkable stretch there. And then we have... Uh, we have very cold weather here. It's minus seven when I hopped in my car this morning uh, here in Denmark. It's hitting uh, continental Europe as well. It's spiking power prices. I know there's a little bit of a disconnect. There's not always a perfect one-to-one -one ratio of, of gas prices to power prices. And I've seen some headlines suggesting at some point these power prices uh, are hitting emergency levels. But what's your latest uh, take on this, this uh, complex? Well, the latest take is that I almost froze my fingers off cycling to work this morning. I know you guys have been skating around on the road, so um, it's it's um, it, we're basically having uh, this this cold blast coming in, and it's uh, and uh, as we've been talking about the the longer term prospects uh, into January and February points to potentially a cold winter uh, ahead, colder than what we normally see. And so um, this uh, this is obviously driving up demand for heating. But what's also important is that uh, right now, especially in Northern Europe, we've got clear blue skies, basically meaning that there's hardly any wind movement. So that means that we are not seeing the power generation from uh, from mills, uh, from wind uh, from, from, from wind power generation. And that is the reason why we're seeing power prices uh, surge higher. We uh, German one month's power price up has doubled in price during the past few weeks. Uh, it's not as bad as that in, in gas market where we up around fifty percent, but it just highlights that the fact that we are we are in for a period of of uh, elevated prices, and we can also see the impact of the of the rising uh, demand for heating is that the gas levels in Europe is uh, suddenly starting to uh, be uh, be we're seeing the data withdrawals uh, suddenly starting to spike here. Um, in addition to this, we also have to remind ourselves that the all the news that we've had out of China that during the past week, which has generally been positive in terms of reopening, that will also potentially drive up uh, competition for gas, uh, for LNG. And uh, that means that uh, the gas will flow to the highest bidder. And uh, that that's also something we need to keep in mind. All right. And the rest of the energy space, we need to round that out with a look at oil. We've recently hit these new almost lows for the year. Uh, what's driving the situation there? 
basically that uh, we are seeing a soft spot in terms of demand uh, this time of year. How much of that is uh, season and how much is related to a uh, general slowdown that I think we need to get into 23 to get a clearer view on that. But we are seeing uh, diesel uh, margins and gasoline margins, uh, especially diesel margins coming down. And uh, yesterday we had the weekly IEA report, EIA uh, inventory report from the US and uh, that's the small inserts. And uh, we can see basically that inventories, both distillates and gasoline is rising quite sharply. And uh, uh, demand on a four-week average basis has uh, has started to uh, to come down. So uh, so basically, just leaving the price uh, struggling to uh, to move higher. And I think also generally, open interest is coming down. The market is still long. That basically means that those who are looking for short-term trading strategies, they will try to squeeze longs. And that's uh, that's part of the reason why we've seen this ten uh, percent a ten dollar drop uh, during the past week. All right, uh, back over to the equity market, Peter. Uh, where's my Campbell soup chart after they they knocked it out of the park yesterday? Well, you're not getting your uh, your Campbell soup. Uh, <laughs> where you'll have to wait for the ne next quarter. So uh, I think we should talk about something else than uh, tomato soups and uh, Andy Warhol uh, <laughs> uh, designs. Um, Mongo Mongo DP was uh, was one of the uh, interesting stocks yesterday as well with Campbell soup. Um, but Mongo Depot was up twenty three percent. Very strong revenue, um, better than expected earnings as well. And I think the guidance were what really pleased investors. So um, they 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 increased the guidance, and it was well above the um, the the current estimates from from analysts. So um, Mongo Depot was uh, DP, sorry, was seeing um seeing a little bit of a relief there. It has been a very uh, Terrible year for for their uh, share price, as with uh, many other technology stocks. And and staying with that theme, Tesla, another, well, is it a technology company? Is it a car company? I mean, you, um, of course, it, it is a car company. When you look at their exposure, and what really drives the revenue, um, and the news that have come out, courtesy of Bloomberg, is that that Elon Musk, uh, together with his you know, advisors, banking advisors, Morgan Stanley is considering issuing new margin loans using Tesla shares as collateral. And it's basically to swap with very much higher yielding Twitter debt. So there is around $3 billion of, of Twitter debt that is currently yielding just below 12% or has a coupon rate just below 12%. And it's really eating into uh, into the cash flow of, of Twitter. And in general, the 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 debt amount at Twitter is is pretty significant given the given the pull a lot of advertisers uh, have done on, on the platform. So um, this is an evolving saga. And I think it, it just underscores the potential risk to his you know network of investments, but especially also uh, Tesla shares that he's uh, putting up all these shares as, as collateral. It's, it's um, We've seen it so many times in history that when you, when you leverage yourself uh, through your shares, it, it, you make yourself extremely vulnerable because what happens if Tesla shares, uh, we are, uh, if you look at slide 10, you can see a, a share price on Tesla. What if we suddenly at, at at 100 or at at 50, right? Um, so um, so that's that's a dynamic to worth having in mind. And also on this weekly chart, you can see that we 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 were pushing lower yesterday as well in Tesla. And it's it's it, I don't know what you're saying, John, but to me this looks like an extremely ugly chart. And if I came in during the early days of the pandemic, I would really seriously be considering taking my gains and 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 maybe just go on the sideline. Yeah, it is an ugly chart. Um... Uh, when you look at it, uh, but let's also talk about your your next slide there, and just to round off the Campbell soup, and there's also General Mills, another big uh, U.S. Uh, food uh, product uh, producer. Both of them uh, hitting new highs here on on strong reports. But then something like Costco, and I think Costco is kind of interesting. I don't know how to position it. If if uh, it's been a while since so I lived in the states, but Costco a little bit like the uh, Target sort of uh, 
placement wise in terms of the the average person that shops there uh not the discount uh level and it's not done very well very recently so kind of interesting the the actual sellers of items uh, store wise versus uh, something like food producers uh that have done well i'm curious what they'll what they'll be saying and, and seeing in among their customers yeah i mean if we look at the expectations for revenue it's 8.8 percent. so that's a little bit more than than inflation compared to a year ago so that suggests uh a positive volume growth still, uh, although it's it's close to zero. I, I if I if I'm if I'm remember correctly, John, I think Costco as well. What what's make what makes Costco interesting is that they have this membership, which increases loyalty. So if you if you buy into sort of the membership club of Costco, you you get additional discounts and good offers. Uh, and I think this uh, this approach to to retailing is is creating some type of a loyalty. I mean, I think this is a really really impressive company. And if I if I provided a, a long-term monthly chart, I mean, I think you would be pretty impressed that a, that a company in such a boring, low-margin business can deliver such uh, strong shareholder returns. But nevertheless, that's the case. So, but we will be watching that, and then also Lululemon. It's a big company in uh, within the consumer uh, segment, uh, taking a lot of market share recently in uh, in clothing and and uh, accessories like shoes. Um, they're broadening out their business. And then Broadcom, $200 billion market cap company in the semiconductors within telecommunication and and uh, network equipment, et cetera. So it, it's not the most sexy company. It's expected to grow revenue 20% compared to a year ago, but very, very important uh, IP, a super important company in the in the global semiconductor uh, industry and also important components that goes into the iPhone. And that might be the downside risk going into this earnings release that we know that the iPhone demand is coming down. And to what extent is that impacting Broadcom earnings and, and their outlook? Okay, let's uh, head for the final macro slide there on slide 12. Jobless claims coming up today. We we had sort of an increasing trend in recent weeks, but that was sort of scotched a little bit by last week's data point. I remember there being some specific reasons why that report was a little bit stronger than expected at 225k. Uh, I've argued we need to start seeing um, these claims coming in at a four to six week average above 250K. And that will obviously take some time, but would be interesting. And I think would underline the market's uh, conviction here if we do see an, an ugly print, uh, say 250K or, or worse. Um, other little bits and pieces, the natural gas uh, storage report, quite interesting there. I know there's some cold weather headed the U.S. this way, at least uh, in parts of the U.S. We have the Chinese uh, inflation data overnight and the final data points of the week out of the U.S. of so the PPI tomorrow and that uh, preliminary University of Michigan sentiment survey, where I think the only impact potential there would be if there's something odd going on suddenly with inflation expectations, which are probably linked mostly to the gasoline price, which hasn't been doing that much in the U.S. anyway. So it really is, I think, the sort of final macro, at least U.S.-based macro event risks of the year uh, are that uh, November CPI next week on Tuesday and the FOMC meeting and how they sort of communicate to the market what they think about what they're going to do and as well as how the market absorbs that relative to what is, as we showed today with that yield curve, uh, that how it's pricing the yield curve and pricing the Fed in late 2023 and especially beyond, uh, how, you know, how, how their uh, guidance shapes up relative to that and if the market believes them. The market has shown at times that it's willing to uh, not take the Fed at its word and, and price the Fed to react what it believes the incoming data will be. So that'll be interesting. Uh, in the meantime, we do have one more day this week, and that'll be tomorrow. Uh, we'll we'll be back with the next Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. 